0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: So we're acting as if it's 1999 where we kind of bestride the world like a colossus. But, you know, that's not the world we're living in. We are living in a world of great power rivalry. That means you have to make choices and you have to focus because you can't just dominate everybody.
2: Hello there. I'm Tom Switzer and on RN. This is Between the Lines. Now, the American penchant for global leadership has been part and parcel of Washington discourse for more than 30 years, since the end of the Cold War. But my next guest, Elbridge Colby, challenges that mindset. Now, Elbridge served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense in the Trump administration, Bridge is a principal at the Marathon Initiative in Washington, and author of The Strategy of Denial. American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict, as published by Yale University Press. Bridge, welcome back to the show.
1: Great to be on with you, Tom.
2: Now, why do you disagree with what appears to remain the Washington consensus about U.S. post-Cold War foreign policy?
1: Well, there's just not enough power to go around. I mean, people are not grappling with the scarcity of our power in the way that the economists talk about it, which is we don't have a military that can fight and win in all theaters certainly not at the same time. And, you know, it's the same would go for our diplomatic and political capital. And, you know, just China is an economy roughly the same size as our own. And we have not adapted inside the beltway and in the kind of, you know, U.S. foreign policy establishment to the, the, the reality. And the reality is, is that, that China is by far the most significant challenge and Asia is the most important theater. And yet here we are again, getting distracted uh, in, in Europe and Europe's important, but it's a lot less important than Asia.
2: Yes, well, all the available American public opinion polling evidence would suggest you're right, but Washington, the beltway, as you put it, both official Republican and Democratic parties, they still subscribe to the notion of America being, in the words of Madeleine Albright, the Democrat Secretary of State in the Clinton administration, America's the indispensable nation. That is still the overwhelming consensus in Washington.
1: It is. I mean, it's... it bothers me to no end. And it's something I think about quite a lot because I do think you're right, Tom, that I actually think that my point of view is actually where voters are, certainly Republicans, but I think I think Democrats as well. If you look at the primaries that are happening in, in ahead of our November elections, China is a big issue in Republican voters, but there's a lot of skepticism, if not hostility, to an aggressive posture. Uh, in Ukraine, let alone the sort of so-called forever wars. I mean, my sense is that the voters kind of get it. They get that China is a major challenge. They felt deindustrialization more acutely. They understand what's at stake, and that's what they're that's what they're communicating. But as you say, the the system is not responding, and that's for a variety of reasons. You know, my my best explanation just is that our system is designed to move slowly, and foreign policy is very elite, and I don't mean that in a good way. It's very. Uh, Sort of beltway oriented structurally and incentives, and it's not, and then, and then people aren't adapting as we should, and that's very dangerous.
2: My guess is Elbridge Colby, the leading architect of the 2018 U.S. national defense strategy, it's arguably the most significant revision of U.S. defense strategy in a generation. Bridge, let's turn to the Ukraine crisis. It is a moving story. Simple question: What do you think Vladimir Putin wants?
1: Well, look, it seems to me that Putin's long-term goal is probably to bring Ukraine back into the Russian arms. I mean, that's what his article last year suggested to, to me, but I I have, I have don't pretend to know what his near-term goals are, but certainly the military mobilization that we're seeing at this point leads me to think that they're fairly significant political goals. I mean, not just keeping Ukraine out of NATO, but maybe some kind of Russian veto or influence directly or indirectly into Ukraine's uh, political structure. But I think, you know, I don't pretend to know what's going through Vladimir Putin's mind on that.
2: Well, as you write in the Wall Street Journal this week, many in the U.S. foreign policy establishment argue that the appropriate U.S. response to any Russian invasion is a major U.S. troop deployment to Central and Eastern Europe. What's wrong with that policy?
1: Well, it's just not grappling with the reality that we are, according to publicly available analysis, we are on a losing trajectory over Taiwan. And Taiwan is not going to be the end of the story with the People's Liberation Army. The Chinese are developing a military that is able to project power pretty soon around Australia's shores uh, and throughout Asia and beyond. I mean, they're looking at a military base in Equatorial Guinea on the Atlantic coast of Africa, for God's sake. So we're acting as if it's 1999, Tom, where we kind of bestride the world like a colossus and we have Madeleine Albright as our secretary of state, God forbid. Um, but, you know, that's not the world we're living in. We are, And that's what we try to do in the National Defense Strategy of 2018 we are living in a world of great power rivalry that means you have to make choices and you have to focus because you can't just dominate everybody
2: even though there's a lot of public support for the idea that NATO should be entitled to defend and militarily support Ukraine as a sovereign state in the face of Russian aggression
1: well yeah I mean I think we can we should support the Ukrainians we should provide them with with lethal weapons and the financial support as appropriate But I don't think we should be getting directly involved in its defense. I don't think Ukraine should be a member of NATO. I've said I said that in the book. I don't think it would be wise or or strategic. Um, So, you know, we can I mean, there's not two options, you know, thermonuclear war or nothing. There's a lot in between. But I think everything we should be do doing should be calibrated with the idea that Asia is the priority. China is the priority threat. And we need to get the Europeans to step up to take more responsibility for their own defense, which they're totally capable of doing. But they don't they refuse to do.
2: Now, the Biden administration this month ordered more than 6,000 additional US troops deployed to Eastern Europe, with many uh, potentially on the way. Now Let's get to your thesis. You worry that the US focus on Ukraine, and, and by the way, Iran in the Persian Gulf, that just distracts attention from the main game, China, which you say genuinely threatens the stability and the peace of Asia. But Bridge, your former Trump administration colleague, John Bolton, past guest on this program, he says that people like you are making a strategic error by supporting reduced or redirected U.S. global involvement. And he says you reflect, quote, the misperception that our attention and resources are zero sum. Bridge Colby.
1: Well, I'll be a little bit rude and say that if John Bolton disagrees with me, that gives me confidence that I'm right. I think John Bolton is is perhaps one of the leading architects of the policies that have got us to the sorry impasse, which is an overly aggressive, overly expansive conception of our role in the world. And that line that you mentioned, Tom, is so illuminating and so damning of Bolton's fundamental worldview because he's saying, I mean, who is more associated with a kind of bombastic and aggressive foreign policy that emphasizes the use of military force. And then he's saying that our assets are not zero sum. Military forces exist in space and time. I mean, he says that we've had inadequate defense budgets for years. Well, whether or not that's true, shouldn't that have had a result? As Oriana and I put in our piece, we have 20 B2 bombers. Those are the only B- Those are the only stealthy pen- penetrating heavy bombers we've got. Those are, they can only be in one place in one time. I'm sorry, John Bolton, it's not Star Trek. And despite the fact that he wants to be able to lord it over Iran or Venezuela and bomb whoever next, that is going to result in disaster. As Churchill said rightly, we can fight two wars or we can win one. And we got to make sure that we can win the big one. Um, And there is an alternative to just surrender. So I think um, I I disagree with Mr. Bolton.
2: Okay, but Bolton also says uh, people like you uh, who exclusively fear China, you ignore the Russia China entente which serves to project China's power through Russia?
1: Well, I mean, I don't think, if anything, I think that strengthens the point. The key theater is Asia, right? It's going to be more than 50% of global GDP. If Russia and China are working together, Russia's not worsening the threat in China, it's worsening the threat in Europe. That should mean all the more reason for us immediately to get the Europeans to do more. It shouldn't distract us from the central theater. I mean, to go back to the Churchill comment, we, they had a Germany first, rightly a Germany first policy. Australian forces were operating in North Africa because if they, if we won in Europe, eventually Japan would be defeated. And that, that had concrete results, of course, in, in a sad way in places like Singapore. But it was ultimately the right decision because if we'd lost to Germany, it didn't matter if you were defending in Malaya because it would eventually go against us. And it's the same kind of thing here.
2: But doesn't Beijing, and, and this is really John Bolton's point, doesn't Beijing closely assess Washington's reactions to crises like Ukraine to decide how to structure future provocations.
1: It does, but this is the thing that Bo- people like Bolton, and it's particularly ironic from Bolton, th- that they're not uh, factoring in adequately, which is, do we have enough stuff? We can have all the willpower in the world, but if all we have to throw at the Chinese are rocks, it ain't gonna work. We've gotta have the right munitions, we gotta have the right platforms, and you can bet that it's gonna be real tough for our military to handle either of the, either the Russians or the Chinese. So we've gotta husband the right capabilities for the Taiwan defense. And that means submarines, uh, it means bombers, it means munitions, it means ISR, it means air defense. And here's the thing, Tom, there's a myth that you can put the army over in Europe and the Navy and the Air Force. No, we're not gonna put airborne troops out there without air cover and without logistics support that's gotta be protected at sea across the Atlantic. American forces have not been under air attack since Korea. So there's gonna be a huge demand in, in Europe if we get engaged. So we got to think strategically and, and Bolton is the antithesis of, of acting strategically. He's frittered our power away all over the world. And this is, I mean, the audacity of this man is actually astounding, Tom, I got to confess <laughs> to you. It's really astounding to me, but that's, that's my personal. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, but uh, getting
2: back to your thesis, <laughs> reordering priorities away from Europe and the Persian Gulf towards Asia. I get all that, but are you suggesting that the Europeans do a lot more to protect their own security and start ending the U.S. defense subsidy?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the United States can remain involved in the way that President Eisenhower and General Marshall originally anticipated, which was that the Europeans would, you know, largely defend themselves with American help. Um, The Europeans are much larger economies than Russia. They actually spend more on defense than Russia. So it's well within their capacity. The Germans, West Germans, two thirds the the size of the current Federal Republic, had 12 active divisions uh, in 1988. Now they have, they probably don't even have one. So it's it's within their capacity. Meantime, in Asia, if the United States is not there, China's bigger economy than most of those other countries in Asia that, that would plausibly stand against it and could isolate them. So it's only with with significant and leading and primary American involvement is China going to be able to be checked in in Asia?
2: And what does this mean for the Persian Gulf? Because obviously, since the September eleven terror attacks more than twenty years ago, the United States has you know primarily been focused on wars like Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya, and even to some extent, Syria. What does your thesis mean for America's future deployments in the Persian Gulf?
1: Well, this brings back, and I think it's important, and people like John Bolton need to be listened to in this context, that we are in this position because people like Bolton and those who he's associated with expended enormous amounts of money, military power, and political will there, there was a lot of political support in the United States for those wars and it was frittered away. And now there is questions about whether, fundamental questions about whether Americans should come, should be involved in the world. And I'm, I take a position that we should. But that, th- th- those are the, pe- you know, it's similar to like a Robert Kagan who's talking about Taiwan. I mean, these are the people, Bill Kristol, these are the people have, who really have led us. They, they've had their hand on the till for a long time. And that's, this is why, where, why we are where we are. The Persian Gulf is a distant third, Tom. I mean, it's really not that important. And by the way, Iran is about a fifth, I think, of the economy of, of the Middle East. It's a threat. Yes, but there's the Israelis, the Emiratis, the Saudis, the Abraham coalition that we can work with and supplement to deny uh, Iran's uh, hegemonic ambitions within, within the Middle East.
2: And you could also say that because America, thanks to fracking, is now energy independent, it's not so reliant on the Middle East for energy.
1: Yeah, we're not actually... I mean, the ones who are really relying on it are our allies, like the Europeans and the Japanese and the South Koreans. I mean, we we should... I know this is a mistake of the current administration, but we should be tapping into our energy resources at mm-hmm. home.
2: If you just tuned in, you're on RN. This is Tom Switzer, and my guest is Elbridge Colby. This week, he co-authored an article in the Wall Street Journal titled Ukraine is a Distraction from Taiwan. It was co-authored with Oriana Skylar Mastro. Bridge, this coming week, so February 21, 28, It marks the 50th anniversary of President Nixon's famous trip to China. Uh, It was before our time, although I I was actually born, but just uh, took a few years before you were born, but it was a momentous (laughs) event in world affairs and it it eventually led to the restoration of diplomatic relations between uh, China and the United States. In retrospect, Bridge, given your criticisms of um, US policy uh, on Taiwan, do you think that Nixon and Kissinger sold out Taiwan to China with respect to the one China policy?
1: Well, I think the opening to China was a great move and it was the right move. I mean, the key thing, Tom, is that strategy is never final. History is never final. The key thing is, I think, as Salisbury put it, is to get rid of the carcass of dead policies or the dead Mm -hmm. carcass of old policies. It's all a matter of timing. It made sense for us to fight with the Soviet Union against the Germans, but we should have anticipated, as Churchill had recommended earlier, that we were gonna have a problem after the war and acted accordingly instead of the kind of naive, uh, FDR, kind of uh, Truman and so forth uh, position early on. Similarly with China, we it made total sense in the latter part of the Cold War, but we should have shifted after the collapse of the Soviet Union more quickly to a more skeptical uh, and kind of balancing approach. But we didn't. Um, I think the particulars with Taiwan, I personally think that um, Kissinger's legacy will not be great. I mean, Nixon, it was Nixon's idea to open to China, not Kissinger. Kissinger, I believe, was initially skeptical about it. And I don't think the negotiations were that good. The Chinese had very little leverage at the time. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the Mao ordered the withdrawal of the government from Beijing because he feared a Soviet nuclear strike in 1969. So they were terrified. And so we kind of like gave them Taiwan. Now, Chiang Kai-shek made a mistake because my understanding is what well, made a mistake. He, he had an opportunity to push for recognition of an independent Taiwan and he refused to do so because he was a Chinese nationalist. I think that's in the past. I mean, our our position now and has been that we don't take a position on the territorial disposition of the island of Taiwan. We haven't taken it since the end of the Second World War. So it's an open issue. I don't think we should support this, the independence of Taiwan as a matter of policy, but I also don't think we're bought into the Chinese one China principle. And, you know, That's things change. And their behavior has certainly changed. So uh, it's critical that we uh, defend against the forced resolution of the Taiwan issue. It's a very important part of our perimeter.
2: Yes, but there's nothing in US law that requires the US to defend Taiwan if it's attacked, correct?
1: That's true. But actually, if you look at the mutual defense treaties we have with Japan or South Korea or Philippines, they're pretty fuzzy too. Even the NATO treaty is actually fairly fuzzy. It's usually about some reaction. So, I mean, look, Treaties are imp- are very important, but so is, you know, it's almost like the difference between statutory law and customary law. Or, you know, I mean, there's an accretion of commitments, of behavior, of statements. Or there's the Taiwan Relations Act, which makes clear our opposition to forced resolution of the, of Taiwan. So and, and the Biden administration is, if anything, made clear clearer America's, commi- quote unquote, rock solid commitment to Taiwan. So I think it's I think that issue is actually kind of in the past now. I think it's pretty clear that we're we're committed to taiwan okay defense. but given
2: the foreign policy fatigue in the the general public and we talked about this earlier because of those forgot forever wars in the middle east i mean are you confident that america would fight and die for taiwan bridge colby
1: i can't predict what i will say is i do believe the american people understand the threat from china and I do believe they will support wars that they think are in their interests. And fighting for Taiwan is not about Taiwan. I wish the we people of Taiwan well, but this is about America's interests. And America does not want China to dominate the world's largest market area because we will suffer accordingly as will Australia and Japan and Taiwan and Europe and others. But I think they will be if there's a good strategy and if we husband our resources. And again, this is where the John Boltons of the world are so poisonous to good strategy and successful foreign policy outcomes is we need to make sure that we're not even close to losing in the primary theatre. And this frittering away of our hard power all around the world, Venezuela, Iran, name your Cuba, is going to lead to a much greater likelihood of war and defeat uh, over Taiwan.
2: Okay. What about China's Belt and Road Initiative? It reaches throughout the world. Does the US need to match them?
1: No. I mean, I think, look, I think what we're going to have to do, and I think this is very relevant to Australia, is we're going to have to match China's geoeconomic market scale somehow, right? And that's going to be us Australia, Japan, probably Europe, South Korea, et cetera. But I don't think, you know, look, China's trying to put a lot of capital to work. A lot of that's probably wasteful. A lot of it's going to provoke a counterbalancing reaction. But we can work with other countries like Japan, South Korea, and others to to sort of give good alternatives to countries for, for, uh, you know, looking not to be too dependent on Chinese investment.
2: Okay. Finally, Bridge, uh, given all of America's domestic troubles, and we've raised these issues in the past, all that polarization, it is frightening. Uh, in Washington. It goes both ways. It's not just Trump. It's also many of these left-wing radicals. Given all this polarization, America's domestic troubles, why then are you so confident about America's ability to bounce back?
1: Well, look, I think we have a lot of pr- troubles internally. I'm very concerned about a lot of them, but I just don't see the facts or, or precedent bearing out this kind of sense that America is not going to kind of be in, engaged in the world. I mean, first of all, and I think... Uh, uh, one of your earlier guests, uh, Peter Jennings, I think, made this point very eloquently. But, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, America looked like it was falling apart. Huge drug use, crime waves, impeachment of a president. And we bounced back with Reagan and stuff. And I mean, this idea that America is this sort of kind of Denmark is not true. I mean, America's always been a pretty chaotic and kind of rough and tumble environment. I don't want to diminish what's going on today. But I mean, we've had a lot of uh, ferment, I would say, over the over the generations. So this I don't think this is especially out of character for us um and the other thing is i don't see the evidence for this notion that we are pulling back from china if anything the Biden administration has largely continued at least rhetorically the trump administration's focus on china and a more confrontational approach towards china democrats are moving in that direction as well partially because i think they see where biden has and how china's treating biden and then also the opposition party is largely in favor of a tougher approach to china so i mean I don't think being weak and soft on china is a winning strategy politically even though we disagree in fact the one area you tend to find agreement in washington is probably that china is a major threat Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) one of those bipartisan issues so the bottom line here is that taiwan is more important than ukraine and the u.s has no hope of competing with china and ensuring taiwan's defense if it's distracted elsewhere bridge great to have an American conservative critic of neoconservatism on RN. Thanks so much for being on Between the Lines, mate.
1: Great pleasure, Tom, thank you.
2: That was Elbridge Colby, principal at the Marathon Initiative and author of The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict, as published by Yale University Press. Albanese, if he wants to become the next Prime Minister, by his own calculations, he'll need to convince more than a million more Australians to vote Labor this time. Now, a few months out from an election, his polls look very good. But then, so did Bill Shorten's, remember, three years ago, only to be shocked by Scott Morrison's miracle victory. Now, Albanese hasn't yet had the type of intense scrutiny that I think it's fair to say that Morrison has been subjected to, has he? Could overdue media attention make the Labor leader vulnerable at some point in the election campaign? To explore what Anthony Albanese has to offer, what makes him tick, I welcome Nick Bryant to the program. Nick's lengthy profile on Albanese, it's titled The Repairman and the Task Ahead, that appears as the lead story in the monthly magazine. It's the February edition. Now, Nick, as many RN listeners will be aware, spent a number of years as the BBC's correspondent in Australia and then New York. But Nick is back in Sydney. Nick, welcome back.
3: Tom, it is great to be back. Thanks for having me on.
2: Our pleasure. And joining us from Perth is Jane Marwick. She's a broadcaster formerly with the ABC, now Sky News and Radio 6 PR. Hi there, Jane.
0: Hello, terrific to be here. And I'm actually coming to you from my shed in the southwest of Western Australia. (laughs)
2: Okay, well that's great. We're all (laughs) over the place here at RN. Now (laughs) let's start with you Nick and your cover monthly magazine article. You spent considerable time with Albanese in preparing your profile piece. What stands out about him?
3: Look, I've interviewed a lot of politicians over the years, Tom. Um, People like Hillary Clinton, people like Tony Blair. I even interviewed Donald Trump Before he became a politician. (laughs) And often there's a kind of aura around these people. Often there's a sort of star power. Often there's a sort of a a stature. Um, Now, you know, meeting Albanese, um, you don't sense that um, to anywhere near the same extent. I mean, he's a a very sort of decent and honest and likable uh, bloke. Um, He is plain spoken. Um, he is, um, you know, loves talking in sporting metaphors. He he loves talking about his love of, of the Rabideaus. Um
2: Well, indeed, he was on this program just before the election and, and I'm a South Sydney supporter, Nick, and uh, we naturally bond. We've known each other for a while, mainly because of South Sydney.
3: <laughs> yeah, right, and that's how he's hoping to bond with a lot of the election. They, they're making this <laughs> rugby code test a kind of <laughs> a test of honesty. You know, they're saying that Scott Morrison's the... The code switcher that he only started supporting the Sharks, obviously, when he got pre-selection in the Shire, all of
1: those (laughs) sort
3: of things. I mean, Albo's a likeable bloke. You know, 10 years ago, I think it would have required a a leap of imagination to to think that he was possibly on the verge of becoming the prime minister. Um, He doesn't have the same stature as some of the Labour giants of the past, the three, for instance, who managed to oust Liberal prime ministers, Gough Whitlam, Bob Hawke and and Kevin Rudd. But his authenticity seems to be the central element of his appeal. I call him Honest Albo uh, in the piece. Okay, now
2: the Prime Minister, as is well known, he's had a grueling few weeks in the media spotlight. Nick, how might Anthony Albanese react when surely attention will eventually turn to him?
3: Well, I sort of suggest in the piece that he might consider. Uh, pursuing a kind of Joe Biden basement strategy during the campaign, which is essentially to hide away as Joe Biden did during 2020 in the midst of COVID and kind of re-emerge uh, the victor and, and really allow Scott Morrison's government to self-immolate because there's this sense at the moment that, um, you know, Scott Morrison does seem to be in a bit of trouble. The, the Liberal government does look a bit tired after all these years in office. And in some ways, you know, Albanese, who hasn't been, that front and centre um, for much of the past two years. Often it seemed like the state premiers have been the de facto leaders of the opposition. You've had the Prime Minister, or post-Prime Minister or a triumvirate of, of Paul Keating, Malcolm Turnbull, Kevin Rudd. They've been laying punches. I talk in the piece of how that sort of French musketeer, Emmanuel Macron, has probably done more than any domestic politician to, to, to sort of cement this idea uh, that Scott Morrison is a political liar over the submarine route. Um, but no, I mean, obviously... Anthony Albanese is starting to adopt a higher profile. Um, ever since the start of the new year, he's been going to places like uh, Queensland. Obviously, he's been far more prominent in the media. And you're right; he is going to come under under a lot more scrutiny. Um, but perhaps more, um, Albanese benefits from the same thing that Morrison benefited from three years ago, which is people don't know uh, as much about him. And I think when they don't know as much about a politician, they tend to be more prone to giving them the benefit of doubt.
2: Well, let's bring uh, Jane Marwick in here. Jane, your thoughts on Albanese as Labor leader. I mean, are you struck by the so far limited media scrutiny of the Labor leader?
0: Yes, I am. And I think Nick really nailed that in that terrific piece in the monthly when he talked about it because even before I read it, I'd been thinking to myself, Albanese, as he says, Spaghetti Bolognese, Albanese, um, (laughs) that's how he describes his surname. Um, He has made himself a very small target. And it's interesting when you compare his run compared to Bill Shorten's and and I think he has learned the lessons of Bill Shorten who was really front and center and made himself a bigger target if you like I think Albanese has been very very clever um but I went back and I hadn't watched I'd only seen snippets of both of their addresses to the National Press Club this year. And it really struck me that the first question to Albanese was very, very soft. A very, very easy question from the press about um and they say you mentioned free rats tests and, and how would he have those how would he roll that out in practice? What would the practicalities be? And you can go back and find that question online. Um, But the first question to the Prime Minister was, did you want to take this opportunity to actually say sorry for the mistakes you've made as Prime Minister? And it goes through COVID, um, the bushfires and being in Hawaii and all of those really sore points for the PM. So already on the back foot, and I think the Prime Minister probably... Um, by nature of the fact that he's the Prime Minister and I would argue that the press club in particular are more left wing. um, He he starts on the back foot this year, Tom.
2: Yes, well, you also mentioned the lack of big policy targets. That's clearly Albo's way of distinguishing Labor today from Bill Shorten's Labor. Nick, this is Peter Harcher writing in the Sydney Morning Herald. He described Labor's policy menu not just as a small target but no target. Nick Bryant.
3: Yeah, that's funny you mentioned that, because that came out the day before Albo did this sort of soft launch of Labour's election campaign. And it was in early December. It was at the West Ashfields League Club in Sydney. It was on a place on the border between the city's western suburbs and its more sort of fashionable, inner west villages. Now, I said to um, Albanese's team, you know, did you see... Peter Harcher's piece yesterday, it came out the day after they'd unveiled their environmental policy. You know, he used that phrase, no target rather than small target. I expected them to be displeased with that and to sort of run against it. But actually, they seemed quite happy <laughs> with that characterization. <laughs> it was almost as if they regarded the Peter Harcher column as confirmation that mission was accomplished. <laughs> uh,
2: but can they run definitely... Can they run and hide on that, though, during an election campaign, Nick?
3: Oh, look, I mean, what Albanese would say is that they have got a policy menu out there. You know, they want to boost sovereign manufacturing. They want to make Australia an energy, a renewable energy powerhouse. Um, you know, they want to increase affordable childcare, all of those things. And Albanese makes the point that actually, if you compare Labor's policy menu now to the policy menu that Rudd went to the election with, what, in 2006, and Bob Hawke first won election mm-hmm. on... He reckons his actually has more programmatic specificity. <laughs> That's sort of sort of, you know for for the voters to
2: decide. Well, now is as good a time as any to remind listeners that the coalition at the federal level has beaten Labor in seven of the last nine contests, and of course, in one of those Labor victories, this is Julia Gillard in 2010. Labor only were a minority government, so Labor has won a majority only once since 1993. What does this tell us about modern federal Labor and the difficulties that Albanese might have in forming a majority government? Jane.
0: Well, Tom, I think that in a lot of ways it tells you that in reality they are out of touch with everyday Australians. And I'm not talking about um, inner city Australians, but, but people in the far flung reaches of the country. But that they're very good at strategy if not so good at broad appeal, and they're very clever at politics.
2: Yes, well, this divide, I mean, the climate wars, for example, I mean, they've been raging for years, Nick, and we'll hear a lot about net zero and energy policy in this election. How does Albanese hope to appeal and reconcile a sort of a green left urban voter and at the same time connect with outer suburban regional families, some of whom work in fossil fuels or the mining sector? Nick?
3: Yeah, look, he reckons the politics of of climate change have changed uh, over the last three years. And of course, the politics of climate change have really been the kind of third rail of Australian politics, haven't they, for for so Mm. many years. One of the reasons why Howard lost, one of the reasons why Kevin Rudd was ousted initially, one of the reasons why uh, Turnbull was too. Um, It's been a difficult policy issue uh, to manage. And, you know, so much of Labour's environment policy right now, which is obviously to have an emissions target, which was not as ambitious as uh, Bill Shorten's, but more ambitious than Scott Morrison's, is to try and neutralise the issue. And Albanese reckons he can tell a different story about the environment, which is one of job creation. It's one of how renewable energy actually lowers fuel bills. Um, And there's an interesting point. He said when he saw that VB were doing adverts saying that their beer was brewed with solar power, he thought that was a sign that the politics of Australian climate change has completely shifted. Now, whether that is an optimistic view uh, remains to be seen, but the fact that he is concentrating so much attention on Queensland at the moment, which was obviously a weak point for Labor uh, three years ago, that's the test of the policy. Does it sell in, in Queensland?
2: Yes. Well, is climate change now a political game changer? Jane Marwick.
0: Yeah, I think it still is. And I think what you'll see is, I mean, I think it's wishful thinking. I laughed, Nick, when I I read what you'd written about Albanese and and the VB ad because I thought the same thing when I saw that ad. But I think it's more wishful thinking because, look, when you go back to real conservatives, they are very disappointed in the Morrison government signing up to Net Zero 2050, okay? There's there's some real disappointment there. And I think that the Morrison government is sort of... (laughs) has tried to run the argument that look, we're a safer pair of hands, we've signed up to this one, Labor will go harder, Um, and perhaps that sort of fear tactic will work because uh, many people are yet to be convinced that renewables will be cheaper, and we look to places like the United Kingdom and see the, the sorts of trouble that they're getting into. I think this is a very murky area and a dangerous area. I think Albo will whack on his Akubra uh, and go to Queensland and we saw Bill Shorten do this in in that, that election where he said one thing in Queensland and another thing mm. um, in in the inner city. I think Albo's treading a fine line, but back to Nick's point about making himself a small target. So if mm. he uses very interesting gentle inoffensive language, Tom, but I think middle Australia is really really worried about power bills and the cost of living. In fact, I know they are.
2: Okay, another big issue in the campaign surely will be China. Now, the coalition is trying to subject Labor to a lot of scrutiny here. You had the Chinese state media, they seem to prefer Albanese. Um, What do you make of all this, Nick Bryan?
3: Look, I mean, people who have scrutinised the Chinese policies of both major parties uh, far more closely than I seem to suggest that there really isn't much daylight between the two of them. I mean, Cameron Stewart, a journalist I really greatly respected, The Australian, he, he drew that conclusion after doing a bit of a deep dive on, on both policies. Um, as for this sort of Manchurian candidate stuff, you know, I think there's a real risk that that, that can backfire um the the claim just seems to be so exaggerated the claim just seems to be so desperate um you know it looks like the claim of a government that is really fearful of defeat and i think that's a it's not the sort of claim that a government who thinks it's going to win uh feels the need to make so i i i think that that probably will end up backfiring and it kind of creates a sense that Albo is a a sort of decent and honest guy and that the you know, Scott Morrison will do whatever it takes to win, even if that means sort of bending the truth a bit.
2: Is that your sense too, Jane? Or is China a weakness for Labor in the lead up to the election?
0: Yeah, look, I, I hear what Nick's saying, but I'm reading the comments and I think China is cutting through. Listening to Talkback Radio and reading comments underneath stories on this, China is a red hot issue for the electorate. Um, so I think Albanese looks a little bit soft on China. He sent Richard Miles out during the week to sort of be more of an attack dog, if you like, but... Um, I take Nick's point about the politics of this, but I think for the everyday Australian, they start to think, is China a problem and who is best placed to protect Australia in the region?
2: Okay. Now, finally, Nick, back to your piece in the monthly, you say maybe it's time for a mechanic rather than a messiah and maybe (laughs) Albo is the repairman for the job. So Nick, (laughs) does he have the right tools for the job? (laughs) (laughs)
3: well look he's a very practical politician um you know you're not going to get the vision you're not going to get much charisma uh you're not even necessarily going to get it articulated in a a particularly concise or clear way um you know Albo often gets his words jumbled up and his his thoughts seem sometimes a, a bit muddled but um you know, maybe that's where Australia is right now. I think Peter Harcher, going back to Peter, has said if you if you want visionary politicians, if you want the sort of JFKs and the Barack Obamas, you're in the wrong place. Um, <laughs> Australia does tend to reward workhorses rather than than showponers, and I think you know that's that's that would be at the at the heart of Albo's appeal, really.
2: Nick, Jane, a civil, lively exchange during these polarising times. Thanks so much for being on RN. Tom, it's been my pleasure.
0: And an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Tom and Nick.
2: That's Nick Bryant. His profile piece on Labor leader Anthony Albanese, or Albanese, as Jane says, (laughs) appears in the February edition of the Monthly Magazine. And Jane Marwick is a Perth-based broadcaster, commentator and farmer. On RN, this is Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Up next... Historian John Edwards takes us back to World War II in one of our nation's darkest days. And then without any warning, three
4: zero fighters came out of the cloud.
1: The 27 Japanese bombers which raided Darwin were escorted by 15 fighters.
4: The enemy plane went off towards the east, one of our planes right on its tail. we got
2: a full view of. it. Saturday, the 19th of February, marks the 80th anniversary of the day Japanese aircraft bombed Darwin. It was the largest attack ever mounted on Australian soil by a foreign power. Now, the Prime Minister 80 years ago was John Curtin. And to help us remember those uncertain times and to reflect on the legacy and meaning of it today, let's turn to the distinguished historian John Edwards. A former RBA board member, John is a senior fellow at the Lowy Institute in Sydney and an adjunct professor with the John Curtin Institute of Public Policy at Curtin University in Perth. Now, John Edwards is author of John Curtin's War, it's published by Penguin, volume one, subtitled, The Coming of War in the Pacific and Reinventing Australia, and volume two, Triumph and Decline. John, welcome back to Between the Lines. Thanks, Tom. A pleasure. Now, take us back to February 1942. So this is 80 years ago this week. What sort of situation did our country find itself in? Well,
4: the situation was exceedingly grim. In mid-January, Japanese troops had uh, landed at Rabaul, which was an an Australian-mandated territory, and uh, landed in New Guinea. And February 15, Singapore had surrendered and... Mm -hmm. Australia's 8th Division had been marched into prison camps. So it was a very, uh, very unfriendly environment for Australia and no possibility at that point of um, finding substantial uh, support against a threatened uh, Japanese move. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and you make the point that the Darwin bombing occurred as the War Cabinet was deciding on Winston Churchill's request to send the leading elements of the 7th Division to Burma, right?
4: That's right, and it it played a role in that decision in that following the surrender of Singapore and indeed before it, Churchill had suggested that uh, Burma be reinforced against uh, Japanese uh, invasion and seized upon the fact that the uh, returning Australian 7th Division from the Middle East was nearby and asked Curtin to permit that division to be sent uh, to Burma, to Rangoon, and Curtin refused. Uh, And there was a protracted cable fight which actually climaxed on the day of the Darwin bombing, uh, the 19th, where uh, the Advisory War Council meeting in Sydney had before it Churchill's request, supported by uh, Menzies, uh, Spender, page in London that the 7th Division be sent to Burma and the view of the Australian War Cabinet, the Labour War Cabinet, that it should proceed to Australia. And the the Darwin bombing gave greater urgency in the view of the Labour members uh, at that Advisory War Council meeting uh, because it demonstrated that, um, that very forcibly that Uh, Japan could attack Australia Mm. at any point, it chose without
2: opposition. Well, indeed. Now, this attack on Darwin, so as a force of, what, 260 Japanese bombers and fighters. Now, the two attacks on that fateful day, John, killed at least 252 people, wounded up to, what, 400 military and civilian personnel, with 160 of the dead being ship's crew. Now, is a comparison to Pearl Harbour accurate? Well, I mean, was it completely unforeseen?
4: Well, it was, it was unforeseen. I mean, there was a warning mm. as they uh, flew over Bathurst Island, which was not paid attention to. So in that respect, it, it resembles uh, Pearl Harbour. But on the other hand, you know, Australia was at war at this point. Uh, it mm. was a surprise attack, but then most uh, many kind of, you know, of those attacks were surprise attacks. But in a sense, it shouldn't have been a surprise attack that Australia should have been better prepared to defend against uh, a carrier-based attack, given yeah. uh, the salience of Darwin to the uh, defence of the Netherlands' East Indies, which was...
2: Yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't an isolated incident. I mean, the city was attacked repeatedly, as were other coastal towns in northern Australia, correct?
4: Well, subsequently, and yeah. um, uh, 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 more than 100 raids in all, But this was the first big attack and it was unexpected. And and Darwin almost completely undefended, uh, you know, about 20 aircraft, anti-aircraft guns, some planes that uh, many, which couldn't fly, which could put up very little opposition. Uh, Japan, hugely
2: successful raid. My guest is John Edwards, author of two volumes of John Curtin's War. John Let's take the views of the military historian um, Peter Stanley. He argues that the battle for Australia in World War II is a complete myth. What would John Curtin think?
4: Well, you've got to think, what were the circumstances at the time? The circumstances at the time were that uh, it was within Japan's power to invade Australia, if it wished. Mm. In fact, the chiefs of staff told Curtin that a week later, but nine days after the uh, Darwin bombing, they said it's within uh, Japan's uh, power. If it chose to do so to invade Australia, it chose not to. But there was a discussion, as as Peter Stanley recognises, there was a discussion in Tokyo about invading Australia, where the naval planning staff thought it was a good idea, the army not, and the army prevailed. But the decision was to cut Australia off, leaving it, you know, the possibility of invasion open subsequently.
2: Not everyone gets behind the war effort. The historian, the late historian Hal G. B. Colpatch, he points the finger at organised labour and the warfies, saying that they can be quote held directly responsible for the scale of the resultant carnage when the Japanese struck. What do you make of the Colpatch revisionist argument, John Edwards?
4: Well, um, the waterside workers, uh, you know, may have may have. Uh been slow in unloading ships. But the waterside workers were not responsible for the fact that there were only 20 uh, anti-aircraft guns there. They weren't responsible for the fact that there was no plan on how to respond to an aircraft, uh, to uh, a Japanese raid. And indeed, uh, given the importance of Darwin for the defence of the Netherlands East Indies, which the Australians and the Americans recognised, uh, and we were utilising Darwin for that purpose. The waterside workers were not responsible for the fact that there were important warships in Darwin.
2: Context is important here. As you mentioned before the fall of Singapore, so that was around, what, February 7, 15, so the second to third week of February 1942. Then the bombing of Darwin, which we're talking about now, that's February 19, 1942. Now, yeah. Prime Minister John Curtin had already made that momentous and pivotal decision to turn to the US for support. That was late December 1941. That obviously makes Curtin look very prescient. So this is an arrangement that really has underpinned Australian defence strategy now for generations, right?
4: It has indeed. Perhaps not for the reasons that uh, Curtin imagined. I mean, after all, the idea that America would be chiefly responsible for Australia's defence in the event of a war with Japan was part of British planning also, uh, Mm. long long Mm. before the actual Japanese attack and was part of, you know, became part of American thinking. The real offence to Churchill in Curtin's declaration that Australia looked to America was that um, he wanted to deal with America directly uh, rather than through the British. Uh, And this, you know, uh, undermined the entire position of, Churchill as the leader of a powerful empire. That was really what went on there. But it's true that subsequently, when the decline of British power was recognised following World War II and uh, it became more apparent that um, that instability in Southeast Asia would be prolonged, that Australia uh, used the opportunity of the uh, Japanese peace treaty to insist upon a defence treaty with the US.
2: Starwin, February 19, 1942. It's the 80th anniversary. John, always great to have you on RN. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure. That's John Edwards, author of two volumes of John Curtin's War. Finally, let me pay tribute to a past guest on Between the Lines, the legendary American satirist PJ O'Rourke. He died this week at age 74. Now, PJ, for what it's worth, I think he was one of the quirkiest, wittiest and most irreverent commentators in America and probably around the Western world. Now, PJ was a guest on this program in 2016, and this is how I started the exchange with PJ O'Rourke. G'day, PJ. Welcome back to Australia.
5: Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It's a fabulous country. Well, listen,
2: and... you've said your whole purpose in life is basically to offend everyone who listens to NPR. Well, you're on Radio National, the Aussie version of NPR, so offend away. <laughs> <laughs> I'll,
5: I'll do my very best, although, you know, the level of offense has gotten so high from a whole variety of politicians around the world that I no longer really feel capable of competing I feel I'm an amateur in a world that's gone professional.
2: How is it that so many so-called experts, and in fact virtually every commentator in America and elsewhere... Me too. Yeah, why didn't we foreshadow Trump's success?
5: Well, I think one thing we weren't factoring in was that you know commentators are much too busy watching themselves on television to watch the amount of television that Americans watch. And I don't think it occurred to any of us I mean, we knew that there was this reality TV show and that there was this Trump fellow on it, but it, it never occurred to us to watch the thing, and it certainly never occurred to us that 319 million Americans were watching it. So, you know, Trump can came as sort of a surprise to, not sort of, He came as a big surprise to all of us had been in every person in America's living room. Mm. You know, however many days a week The Apprentice shows up, I don't even know. Mm -hmm. We have been as a group, and I have been as a person, so wrong for so long about Mm -hmm. all of this that I hesitate to make any predictions. (laughs) But the math would tell us that Hillary has the voters to make her president. She has large blocks of voters, women, young people, blacks, Hispanics, other minority groups, etc., etc who support her. The problem for her is that she's counting on the votes of groups of people who are rather famous for not voting.
2: Mm.
5: You know, if, if we had compulsory voting like you do, mm-hmm. I think Hillary would win in a walk.
2: Yeah. You're going to support Hillary Clinton, am I right? Well. You will vote for her.
5: I will vote for her if I have to vote for her. Why will
2: you vote for Hillary Clinton?
5: Because, although I consider her to be wrong about absolutely everything, she's wrong within the normal
2: parameters. <laughs> <laughs> what about Whitewater, Benghazi, the Clinton oh, Foundation? OZ, and also, bear in mind, and, I mean, you know uh, this better yeah. than I, she's widely detested, polarizing, untrustworthy, really. Oh,
5: completely. I mean, and those are the good things about her. I mean, LAUGHTER straight downhill from there, you know, and yet I'll still vote for. And the reason is we come back to that volatility. I mean, Trump is a man who has the intellect, the character, never mind the experience or the knowledge. He has no qualification whatsoever to be president. And he's a volatile, unpredictable, extremely shallow, shallow to the point of pathological narcissism. It's just too dangerous to have him. Clinton will be Bad. In fact, she may be a good deal worse than bad, but she won't be unpredictable. Yeah. And we're not going to get any terrible surprises. Now, I'm hoping. You know, we have this odd electoral system. That, you know, where it goes state by state to the electoral college. If I wake up on election morning in November, and somebody, anybody, is thirty points ahead in my state, then I will have the luxury to go vote for the Libertarian ticket which it doesn't stand a chance in hell of winning. But I live in a swing state, and yeah. it may be a tight election. And if it looks like my vote is actually going to matter, I have to suck it up and vote for Hillary. I'm sure it'll mean an extra million years in purgatory that I did so.
2: <laughs> now, PJ, one party we're overlooking here, are the Libertarians, why won't you embrace them?
5: Well, I do. I mean, I think they're absolutely wonderful. I just don't think they have any chance to win. The Libertarian case is a little hard to make politically because it's basically, we'll do less for you. Mm -hmm. Elect Mm -hmm. us and we'll do less for you.
2: (laughs) Well, what I can't quite work out, I've seen some polls that show something like five, maybe 10% of Bernie Sanders supporters, they're presumably socialists, say they're going to vote for the Libertarians. How do you account for that?
5: Well, because Sanders too was a vote of anger, disappointment, confusion and Um, frustration. You know, why Bernie? And I said, well, you have to understand how well we killed off communism. Mm. And these kids who are supporting Bernie's politics, Bernie's politics, you know, the Berlin Wall fell on Mm. them. We killed off communism so well that the kids who support Sanders don't know what it is. They don't know how badly this thing worked when it was actually tried because it's gone every place except North Korea. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And so they felt like they could support this Marxist because they didn't have the slightest idea what Marxism is like in action. Bless their little hearts.
2: <laughs> That's the humorist, writer and libertarian PJ O'Rourke past guest on this program, born November 1947, died this week on February 15. That's Between the Lines this week. I'm Tom Switzer. And remember, if you'd like to hear past episodes, including our recent discussion on Myanmar with Amanda Hodge and Nicholas Farrelly, just go to abc.net.au slash RN and follow the prompts to Between the Lines, or of course, you can just download the show's podcast on the ABC's Listen app. I'm Tom Switzer. Thanks for tuning in. Bye for now.